those people listening back later, um, the reading is from Ruth chapter 4, and it's verses 13 to 22. Um, as Sam said, we're starting a short series on women in the Bible. Um, and it, for me, it's been a very interesting journey preparing for this talk. Because the reading that we have is not the one that I was taught in Sunday school about Ruth. There's one particular bit of Ruth that we always teach to kids. Um, can anybody guess what that is? Anybody know? Because I will go where you go. Yeah. It's, it's when, when Ruth decides to be loyal to Naomi and travels with her. And here we have, this is the spoiler alert, here we have the end of the story so we know what happens. Um, Obviously, Saturday was a, a short praise in cartoon form earlier. But so normally, um, when you talk about the bit where Ruth decides to stay, stay with Naomi, you can talk about all sorts of good things about Ruth. I know we're talking about women in the Bible, but actually, the absolute final, ultimate bit of Ruth is not about her at all. And that's the interesting thing. Yeah. Um, so we're going to look at how the story of Ruth's life leads up to this final moment, um, what the whole point of the book of Ruth is, and I must admit I've read Ruth several times and completely missed the main point. Um, if, if somebody had said to me, what do you remember about Ruth, it's the Naomi bit, you know, um, and, what, uh, and also what, does, uh, ha what happened to a Moabite woman thousands of years ago. This is well before Jesus was born, have as a message for us today. And the whole point about Ruth is, it's the small story in the big story. This is, the first picture is tiny, but it will grow. You'll see how, it, how skillful it all is. Um, so in the story of Ruth, there are three main characters. Uh, there's Naomi the widow, there's Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the farmer. These aren't they. But this is Naomi and her family that, that are up on the top there. They're living in the days of the judges. So this is before Israel had a king. And they were days of terrible political instability. Um, and some of the judges were good people, and some of the judges were definitely not good people. Uh, but they were leaders of uh, the people uh, who were living in Israel and Judah. Naomi's family, which is this little tiny, tiny picture up here, um, consists of herself, her husband Elimelech, and their two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And they were living in Judah, and there was a terrible, terrible famine. Now, Moabites were ancient enemies of the people of Judah, um, but they knew that there was food in Moab. So they made that journey from, they were living in Judah, which is the bottom bit of Israel, if you like, it's the southern kingdom as part of Israel. And they moved over to the other side there, to the kingdom of Moab, where the food was. And it must have been quite difficult to move in because uh, there were people, all, they'd always been fighting with the Moabites, and here we are, we're saying, we're going to, we want to share your food. So there was no lost luck between their new neighbours and themselves. So the family lived in Moab for several years, in fact for more than 10 years, and they got on with doing what families do. And unfortunately, um, Elimelech died, the father died, and two Moabite women were found as wives for Naomi's son. That's Orpha, Orpa and Ruth. And unfortunately, it all went wrong, because the two sons, Marlon and Kilion, also died, 
So now we have the three women left. We have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. Um, at this point, Naomi hears that there is now food back in Judah. And as a penniless widow, she decides to travel back to her homeland. And this is the famous bit about the Book of Ruth, isn't it? Um, Naomi and Ruth are left. Orpah's peel, peeled off because she decided she wanted to stay in Moab, which was her homeland. And Ruth has decided to go with Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. <clears throat> Naomi has been scarred by the events of the previous 10 plus years, and she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And they travel back to uh, Judah, and everyone's talking about Naomi's return. And as luck would have it, they arrive. They're completely penniless, they have nothing, but they arrive as the barley harvest is starting. And they went to the fields and started gleaning, picking up grain that had been left behind by the farmhands as they were harvesting. And as it happened, Ruth was actually gleaning in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the same clan as Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Um, Boaz notices Ruth and inquires about her. He'd been away, but he'd just come back, just at the start of the harvest, just when Ruth turned up. Um, and he notices Ruth, who's been working hard gleaning grain, and asks his farmhands to leave more behind than they usually do. And actually, when you look in the, in the, uh, in the text itself, it says, um, I think it's an ether, but they, it basically works out at 13 kilos. That's a lot of grain to be carrying around. But anyway, um, and he, 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 Boaz knows about Ruth. He knows about the story of her loyalty to Naomi and is impressed. So she goes back, um, and Boaz actually prays to God that God to God that God will reward Ruth for her boldness in coming and gleaning, um, and reward her for her loyalty and the way she's been behaving. So there, Ruth goes back to Naomi and says, "I've met Boaz." She doesn't know she's related by marriage to Boaz. But Naomi, Naomi does. Boaz is her kinsman, and to avoid penniless widows starving, there's the rule that the kinsman redeemer should marry the widow so that the family line won't draw out. So at this point, Naomi is already seeing wedding bells because she can see that Ruth, there's a possibility that Ruth could marry Boaz. Naomi herself is too old to marry Boaz, but um, she can see that there's a possibility of Ruth marrying Boaz. So what what uh, she says is to she says to Ruth is get dressed up, get yourself all tarted up, ready to don't make me not tarted up, get yourself all pretty, all pretty <laughs> to uh, uh, to go and impress Boaz. And Bo Ruth then heads for the field where she knows that Boaz has been working in the field with his men and, and supervising what's going on. And so she heads to the field and says, um, she, she actually goes to where he's sleeping. He's already been eating and drinking and he's now asleep. And she goes and sits at his feet. And actually says she, she puts, puts, pulls his blanket over her. We won't go into that. Um, but uh, basically, she, he wakes up, he finds her there. He knows, she know, he knows who she is, um, and she actually takes the plunge. She says, 
will you will you redeem our family? Will you marry me and save us from being destitute? Um, so we've already had the spoiler because we know that they had kids and uh, a child later on. But the the whole point of this story is not that. It's not a love story. Though it is a love story because they have a special uh, relationship between them. What's special is about where it goes next. So yes, yes they had a child. But as it was mentioned in our reading, the joy and birth of the child is also significant because that child was, absolute, was actually an ancestor of Jesus. So when you look at the... It's interesting when you start looking at... You know those bits in Bible books where you, that you don't... Where it says so-and-so big out so-and-so and so that you all ignore. <laughs> really, really, really important to the Jewish people. Um, and that's probably why I haven't really realised the significance of the book of Ruth. <clears throat> because at the end of that, there's another genealogy and you just go to the next book, don't you? And don't really watch what it's doing. Um, but basically... Obed, who was the son of um, Naomi and Boaz, was the direct ancestor of the line of David. And when you look in Matthew 1.5, which starts with Abraham and moves down the generations, and in Luke 3.5.52, which starts with Jesus and traces him back all the way to Adam, um, you actually see that uh, Boaz is in that um, uh, family history. The thing about Boaz and Ruth is they didn't know where this was leading. They had no idea. They just lived their lives as best they could. Um, they had times of loyalty which set them out apart from other people. Ruth was uh, loyal to Naomi. Um, Boaz was loyal to his family line. Um, they, and Boaz acted with a, a great deal of kindness towards Ruth. And interestingly, Boaz prayed for Ruth. And he ended up answering his own prayer. And that can often happen with prayer, guys. Because if you know it, if you care enough to pray for somebody, you're actually invested in them. And you want something good to happen. And quite often it might be you, you be the one that's going to actually do it. Uh, so you've got to be careful what you pray for. <laughs> I don't mean that. Um, so let Boaz and Ruth just live their lives. Both shows loyalty, but Boaz acted with kindness. But their story had cosmic significance. We believe that where the line of David went actually changed the world. And that's the thing about, I think that's the message of Ruth. It's not particularly that Ruth was loyal or that Boaz was a kind man. The, the, the message of Ruth is that we are all part of God's big story. We all have a part to play. And very often we won't have any idea what that part is until uh, something happens maybe later on. And in some cases, we may never see the results of what we do. I mean, just imagine this lot. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. A right-run bunch they were. One tax collector, one doctor. Mark, who was a person peripheral to the, the story, it's thought that Mark's um, mother actually owned the upper room where the um, uh, communion, the... the um, uh, Last Supper was held. Yeah, sorry. I wandered off there for a minute. I've got it written down. Um, and then there's a fisherman. They would never in their wildest dreams have imagined they would ever be part of a picture like that. They would never imagine in their wildest dreams that what they wrote down we would still be treasuring 
and reading more than 2,000 years later. When you do things, you never know how they're going to turn out. Does anybody know who these two men are? Well, one's got Winston Churchill. Does anybody know who that is? Sorry? No. Yes. Yes. There's a story. And Alexander Fleming. What, what did Alexander Fleming do? He discovered penicillin. There was a bit of rivalry going on, but yeah, he, he was one of the men that discovered penicillin. And there is a story that possibly connects these two men. The guy in the white coat, Alexander Fleming, was the discoverer of penicillin. And we know that the other guy is Winston Churchill, <coughs> who went on as a, a political leader, uh, became a political leader, and led this country through the Second World War. Um, the story goes that there was a poor Scottish farmer named Fleming. And one day, while he was trying to make a living for his family, he was trying to scrape together um, something to, for his family to eat. He heard a cry for help coming from a nearby bog. He dropped his tools and ran to the bog, and there, mired to the waist in black muck, was a terrified boy, screaming and struggling to free himself. Farmer Fleming saved the lad from what could have been a slow and terrifying death. The next day, a fancy carriage pulled up to the Scotsman's sparse shack. An elegantly dressed nobleman stepped out and introduced himself as the father of the boy Farmer Fleming had saved. I want to repay you, he said. You saved my son's life. I can't accept payment for what I did, the Scottish farmer replied, waving away the offer. At that moment, the farmer's own son came to the door of the family hovel. Is that your son? the nobleman asked. Yes. The farmer replied proudly. I'll make you a deal. Let me provide him with the level of education my own son will enjoy. And if the lad is anything like his father, he'll no doubt grow to be a man we will both be proud of. And that's what happened. Father Fleming's son attended the very best schools and in time graduated from St Mary's Hospital Medical School in London and went on to become known throughout the world as the noted Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. <clears throat> Years afterwards, the same nobleman's son, who was saved from the bog, was stricken with pneumonia. What saved his life? Penicillin. The nobleman was Lord Randolph Churchill, and his son was Winston. You never know what's going to happen when you sow some seeds. Anybody know who these two are? One's Desmond Tutu. Anybody know who that is? He's less well known. He was very important at one point. His name is Trevor Huddleston, and he was an Anglican priest who worked for a while in South Africa. When Desmond Tutu, Desmond Tutu told this story um, shortly before he died in, in an interview, actually. Desmond Tutu was about nine. He remembered his mother, Aletta Tutu, being a domestic worker at an institute for blind black people. And he always remembered Trevor Huddleston in his long white flowing robes, raising his hat to Aletta as she walked to work. 
One day when there had been heavy rain and flood water in the road, they had really deep pavements there, sort of like about this sort of deep from the ground. Um, he actually stepped off the pavement to allow a letter to walk along the pavement. Desmond Tutu was amazed. He was a white man treating a black woman with true dignity. Racial segregation was in full force at the time. It hadn't yet become apartheid, that came later. Um, but those sorts of things just didn't happen. The two groups of people were generally kept apart, segregated. <clears throat> Tutu said that Trevor Huddleston's actions heavily influenced him in both becoming a church man, a man of God, and also in his fight against apartheid, which he did he fought for and it was part of all the reconciliation that went on. It all started with the raising of a hat, showing respect. Trevor Huddleston also was very active in the fight, uh, the fight against apartheid, um, and uh, really was an advocate um, against it uh, when he came back to this country. Um, but it all started with the raising of a hat, just showing respect, and we never ever know the effects of our actions. How do we change the world? This is a quote from Morgan Freeman, actually, which surprised me, but anyway, it doesn't matter, it's good stuff. How do we change the world? One random act of kindness at a time. And as you found, Carol, you know, you take the chance and it rewards. And it may not be instant, you, know, you, you'll never, you may never see those people again, but somewhere down the line, you never know. Yeah, absolutely. How do we change the world? One random act of kindness at a time. I always remember a woman called Peggy at my first church that I went to after I became a Christian. Um, it was Twickenham Baptist Church. And she sent me a Christmas card until she, she, until she developed dementia, actually. Every year. And she always put in it, I always remember how kind you were when I first came to this church. I have no recollection of that. But that was the reason she came back. I don't, I, it's not I'm a saint, I just, I don't, I must have just done something that just, you know. And we get disappointed when we don't see fruit or we don't know about things. And Miss Critchley, my, my uh, Sunday school teacher, again, I disappeared from the church for 24 years. But when I'm, I met God in my living room when I was 34, uh, he used the words that Miss Critchley had taught me. She never knew that. You know, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you always think there's no results. Everybody is scarfers when they're in their teens and disappears forever. Random acts of kindness are never wasted. My pastor used to say, nothing is wasted in God's economy. Random acts of kindness involve treating people with dignity or showing love to people. And it may, be, may not be what people call evangelism, but often people will ask you why you behave differently to the people around you. And that's an opportunity to tell them who you belong to. And as we say, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said this, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. You can never tell what's going to happen. Boaz and, Boaz and Ruth had no idea of the part they played in history. Um, 
We don't know the part we play in sowing seeds. As I say, Peggy thought I'd sowed a seed there that day. I have no idea what I did. I'd like to say it was all planned, it wasn't. Um, but how is that going to change your life? We all need to think about sowing seeds, just doing something kind, doing something that maybe just cheers someone's day. Do it today. Do it tomorrow. Do it next week. Do it next year. Do it every day. You never know what the results will be. John's going to sing a song in a minute called In Your Way and In Your Time. And it's all about waiting for God, really. And all we can do is live as if we live in the kingdom. That's how the kingdom comes, by us living as if we're already living in the kingdom and behaving as if we're already living in the kingdom. And that is how the kingdom spreads. Um, so, as I say, you might sometimes think, you know, nothing happens. I do this, everything, I'm nice to everybody and nothing happens. You have no idea what seeds you have sown. So while John sings, let's reflect on that.